Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. This week we have another bonus episode for you, an interview with the cancelled former Labour Metro Mayor Jamie Driscoll, who is now serving as an independent. In 2019, Driscoll became the first mayor for an area called North of Tyne, which essentially covers Newcastle and its northern surrounds. In power, Driscoll proved a really quite effective operator, successfully leading efforts to expand his North of Tyne mayoralty to cover almost the entire northeast. But then, when Labour began the process of choosing its candidate for this new regional mayoralty, the party blocked Driscoll from standing, informing him that he had not made the grade. The party said it was simply guaranteeing the highest quality candidates. Driscoll, of course, saw it differently and accused Labour and its leader, Keir Starmer, of conducting a purge of anyone who dared disagree with them. Last week, Driscoll resigned from the party and announced he would stand as an independent if he could raise £25,000 in public donations, a target that he hit within two hours. For all of these reasons, we thought Driscoll would be a fascinating guest to interview. He is smart and savvy, and as you'll hear, extremely confident in himself and his prospects in the fight ahead. I hope you enjoy. The North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll has raised more than £70,000 in his bid to be elected as the new North East Mayor. Mr Driscoll quit Labour yesterday after the party selected Northumbria Police and Crime Commissioner Kim McGuinness. So Jamie, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to talk to you. This podcast is about the history of politics, how we got to where we are today. But let's start with your own story. You were born in 1970 in Middlesbrough, left school at 16, and then you became a councillor, met the first mayor of the north of Tyne, and then it looked very much like you were going to be the first mayor of the northeast. And then, as we know from the news, you may still be the first mayor of the northeast, but not the first Labour mayor of the northeast. So let's start from the beginning. When you left school, why did you leave school so early and how did you get involved in politics from that point? Well, I was actually involved in politics before I left school. I joined the Labour Party in 1985. So the, the miners' strike has obviously been a massive issue at that time. Yeah, My mum was a trade unionist, but prior to that, she'd set up the Women's Refuge with others, the first Women's Refuge in Middlesbrough. So that informs a lot of my politics, that, that struggle against violence against women and girls. And she was a Nalgo lay member, a shop steward as well. And my dad had been laid off from ICI, took voluntary redundancy and early retirement, as did thousands of others. And that was Thatcher's Britain. I mean, in 1986, I think it was, when Margaret Thatcher visited Teesside, I was one of the Labour members there protesting. Oh, really? Is that the, is that the famous picture of her on the, that sort of desolate 
plain in Teesside when she's saying it's going to, you know, we'll, we'll turn this around? That's the very one. Yes, I was there. And politics, one of the things about how much politics has changed, I was about 12 inches away from her. She's walking down the line, shaking hands. I didn't offer her my hand. You would not be allowed anywhere near a senior politician these days. And I <laughs> right. think actually we've lost a lot in our politics because politicians are very heavily insulated. Politics is much more febrile at the same time. So, yeah, now then we can fast forward a lot of years. I mean, I was out campaigning for Neil Kinnock to get him to be prime minister. That didn't end well. Uh, but then it was not until 2018. So, I mean, we've fast forwarded a long time there. Mm-hmm. That after kids and being an engineer. So I went to university in my early 20s. So it turned out that I had a, a real academic talent for it, worked as an engineer, got into software development, turned out I had some ability in that, set up my own business. Rode that back a bit when I had kids. I was the, the main carer. My wife continued her career. She's a GP. Yeah. I just, I just kept the clients I enjoyed working with. And then a lot of people have been asking me, you know, you should be a counsellor. You've obviously got ability. You're eloquent. And uh, oh, I don't want to. I've got young kids. And it was all out elections. So the entire council was up in Newcastle. And I said, I didn't want to be parachuted into a safe seat in the west end of the city. Where I live, you know, it's not a Labour area. You're not, actually, there's loads of Labour members, but very few Labour votes. Where, where, do, you, where um, do you live, sorry, Jamie? I live in South Gosforth, not far from Jesmond Dean. So anyone who knows the city knows that it's, you know, it's a leafy suburb. It's quite nice. It's the posh bit. Right? Uh, it's not the posh, posh bit. You know, <laughs> it is a, a standard suburban semi that I live in. I'm a straight white man who has two kids who lives in a semi-detached house, you know, in the suburban area. I am about as vanilla as you can get in that respect. Ah, uh, but there is there is something interesting though that I was reading that you homeschooled your children. Is that is that right? That's true. Yeah. So I mean, we had a lot of difficulties with the boys and sort of traditional economic educational approach. And I'm, I'm always a bit wary about saying this because every parent boasts about their kids, but my my eldest son, when he was five, he'd read all the Harry Potter books. You know, he's right, incredibly wow. academically able, but at the same time, he was just five, you know, and had the emotional maturity of a five, or maybe a six or seven-year-old, you know. So on the advice of an educational psychologist who said, you can't advance him to the level where he's going to find the work stimulating because he'd be playing football with boys twice his size. Right. So have you thought about homeschooling? And that's the point at which, you know, I wrote back from a lot of the work, did the homeschooling. And it's, it's actually been the best job I've ever had in terms of fulfilment, in terms of using all of my talents and skills and experience, including my black belt in jiu-jitsu, it's not an option for everyone. But education and giving kids the freedom to be expressive is something that's quite close to my heart. And I think it's part of my politics. You know, people often try and pigeonhole people. I'm very libertarian socialist in many ways. You know, give people the freedom and the choice. And likewise, I think teachers should have the freedom and the choice to to be good classroom teachers. And, you know, I've heard horror stories about them being given corporate presentations for PowerPoint that they have to run through with the kids. Right. Why, why hire a skilled person and then say, you're not allowed to use your skill? Can, can you really be a libertarian socialist? Isn't that a contradiction? Especially if you're in charge of things, you've got to tell people what to do. Ah, well, it depends how you tell them what to do. You know, you might say it's exactly the same as being a parent. Do you, know, do you shout and scream at people or do you try and sit down with them and talk it through? It's, a, it's an iron law of politics that everyone acts in their self-interests. Right. The job of a progressive politician is to get people to act in their enlightened self-interest and to stop thinking short-term, to stop thinking selfishly and realise it's part of a bigger whole. So I think the libertarian aspect is let people make their own decisions, except where it's going to conflict 
with other people's freedoms. And that's always the, you know, going the political philosophy of it. That's always where it gets really interesting. So you're a bit of a rebel or a, certainly somewhat unorthodox as a person in general. I think that's probably fair to say, yeah. I'm an engineer by profession, but I run economics and philosophy reading groups. I'm a black belt in jiu-jitsu who worked as a bouncer to pay his way through university. You know, home educated my kids. On the other hand, I've had praise from conservative cabinet ministers and conservatives who served with me in the combined authority. So it's, it's not easy to pigeonhole. And I think that's probably quite a good thing. I think we do need a bit more... I don't know, diversity and responsiveness in politics. And and that libertarian question you're asking there, Tom, you know, I mean, we'll put a lot of decisions to the people in terms of how we fund things in terms of community projects. Well, we set it up as a crowdfunder. So it's not me saying, yes, I approve of that project. No, I don't approve of that one. We have a crowdfunder where there's the current round, that's half a million quid available. Communities come up with their idea. But if they can get lots of people to vote for it in terms of putting in a small donation, and the average donation's a tenner, then we put the big amount of funding in. Right, what, for, for, for what kind of things are we talking about here? So this could be anything from the Bluegrass Festival, you know, the music, bang, 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 uh, over in Hexham, that was a terrible... <laughs> I'm not a musician. <laughs> uh, but beach wheelchairs on colour coats or people rewilding their back lanes where we've put the planters and the fruit trees we've given them, but they've, they've built them and they've planted them and they maintain them. So whatever it is that the community wants, and it's got a strong theme of social inclusion, tackling the climate emergency and tackling poverty directly. Yeah. You know, it, it works. Let's go back to how you came into politics professionally for the first time. So it was 2018 is when you first joined the Newcastle. Was it Newcastle City Council? That's right. Yeah. At the time. So this is really the sort of the high high watermark of Corbynism, isn't it, at that time? You know, he just he just denied Theresa May a majority in the 2017 election, and it's before his obviously big defeat in 2019. So this is when he is probably at his most powerful. And, and you were a sort of committed supporter of his at the time. Is that fair? Yeah, it was the... I reject the label Corbynista. I think that that's pinning to a specific person at a specific time. Socialist, yes. Right. So someone who, I thought the policy platform was very much supported out on the doorsteps. And I think it still is. You know, if you'd ask people now, should we be paying billions in dividends to the people who own our water companies? I think, I don't know what the figures would be, but 80, 90% of people would be in favour of taking that back under common ownership. So it was that kind of thing. And it was all out. And I hadn't wanted to be parachuted into a safe part of the city. So I said, I'd only run somewhere where I had a personal connection, where I lived previously. But it turned out that there was a new ward created called Monument right in the city centre. And it had previously been like the middle of a pizza where it had been distributed between loads of other wards. So I ran for that. I'd run a business there. I did my degree there. I ran a martial arts club there. So I knew the place inside out. I was never away from it anyway. I was selected there, won, and became a, a city councillor. Why would you have been parachuted in? Did you have connections at the time or, or you know, how did you get the seat? In, well, in Monument, I wasn't parachuted in. It was a, an overwhelming vote from the members. I think there was only one against. I mean, there's not big turnouts in local Labour selection can, council selections, let's be honest about that. But it was overwhelming support. But there was lots of people stepping down, lots of spaces in safe Labour seats where if you just kind of turn up and you can walk into chew gum at the same time, then, then there's a good chance you're going to get selected. And you were, you were in momentum at the time. Is that right? So you had, you, you know, you had that support, you had that network behind you. 
Um, well, it wasn't so much the network behind me. It was the support of the members, the grassroots members, because I'd done you know, all, all sorts of campaigning. I used to run for the Labour Party, in fact, in the northeast. I ran so that training courses on persuading people when you're knocking on the doors. Oh, right. So I'd done all the grassroots work all the way up. Right. So you were skilled at that then, the persuading. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, so, so you come in in 2018. And I think it's, it seems kind of remarkable then that you... You're first elected as a councillor in 2018, and then the Labour Party suffers. It's obviously it, it's well, it go. It's you're you you become the mayor or the the Labour candidate for the mayor in 2019. So a year after you're first elected as a councillor, how did that come about? How did you manage to beat off competition, presumably from you know veteran Labour members? Yeah, well, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of turn, but. Nick Forbes, who was the leader of Newcastle City Council, who had, to be fair, done the work to create the North of Time Combined Authority. It's actually worth going back. So there was a load of mayors elected in 2017. Andy Burnham in Manchester, Andy Street in in the West Midlands, and so on. The North East had been looking to come together uh, across what's called the LA7. So that's Northumberland, County Durham, and the five Tyne and Weir authorities, Newcastle, Sunderland, and so on. And that had broken down because there were all Labour councils at the time, but they'd been unable to agree. And so the north of Tyne, which is Newcastle, North Tyneside and Northumberland, all the way up to Berwick, huge geographic area, very diverse, had sort of risen from the ashes, as it were, out of that. Nick Forbes was the leader of Newcastle Council. Everyone expected him to be a shoo-in. And I'd asked a lot of other people, would they run? And said, I'll run your campaign for you. Don't worry, I'm organised. I'm sure you'll win. And I'd asked nine different women. One's now an MP. One was an MEP at the time. And they all said, look, it's not for me. And the phone went one Sunday morning. And this is November time. So I've been a councillor maybe six months. And they said, look, you've got to stop asking other people to do it and run yourself. Right. And I said, yeah, I'm going to have to speak to my wife about this, you know. <laughs> it's a bit of a life change. And asked my wife, asked my kids as well. And I think on my eldest, he said, look, this is probably going to be bad for our education, Dad, but it'd be so much better for so many other children. I think you should do it. And it's stories like that that you think, oh. So I went forward and was absolutely the underdog, but contacted people. We rang Literally everyone on the list knew I'd won a fortnight out because of the polling returns from, from calling people. I was selected as a Labour candidate. And it was a very interesting time that May in 2019. Across the North East, Labour had been defending 171 council seats and lost exactly one third of them. It was a real bloodbath for Labour, lost control of various councils and mayors went to independents at that time, whereas in the north of time, we did really well, increased the vote wherever there was a by-election. So, you know, the campaign was partly effective as well, I think. Yeah. So we came the mayor. And uh, normally, when you come into power, there's an organisation there. Well, this was brand new. Yeah. My first day, there were more camera crew than there were staff. And when the, the camera crew had left, all the people who were there walked out. Um, and I was left with a couple of them. So where's everyone going? She says, oh, we bust them in from the neighbouring authority, so it looked busy. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this sort of ability, then you come from the left of the party, but you pride yourself on being able to build bridges with not just people on the right of the party or outside the party in business or even among Tory Tory members now. I mean, I think Simon Clark in, in Middlesbrough has been quite has praised you is that is that right he has yeah i first met simon when he was a treasury minister and it actually was when i was down in treasury i'd heard that everybody else other city regions were getting the city regional sustainable transport money 
we're not allowed it in the north of time because of that, as I said earlier, that, that split that we're only half the region. So they couldn't devolve transport to us because the metro spans both north and south of the time. And so I'd gone and said, look, can we have the money anyway? This is grossly unfair. And they said, well, no, you can't because the rules don't allow it. And they were right about that. And I said, well, how about if I bring the region together? And they said, yeah, right. People have tried that and failed. It's never going to happen. I said, right, well, I'll call your bluff then, put it in and just you know, put me on the spot because if it doesn't happen, you don't have to give us the money. So they did. And it went into the budget on March the 11th, 2020, just before lockdown. And, uh, and then worked with Simon when he became local government minister. And we've worked very well together. And he has praised me many times. You know, worked with Michael Gove, worked with Grant Shapps. People's politics, I do not agree with them on many things. But I think your job as a politician is to get people, as I say, to see the light and do something progressive and try and find that win-win. I'm a hate the sin, love the sinner kind of guy. And that's worked well because when I came in, nobody wanted me as mayor because nobody ever wants the mayor, local authority leaders. They think they should have the money directly you know, regardless of who you are. But spent a lot of time working with the Conservatives in Northumberland, and now the leader of the Conservatives in Northumberland openly praises me. This was when I was still a Labour mayor. There's quotes there in The Guardian, you know, Jamie is an excellent, honest broker and deserves credit for getting this deal together. When do you ever get a Tory praising a Labour politician? And when this all blew off about the Labour Party deselecting me, the former deputy leader of, of Conservatives in Northumberland did this fantastic praise about Jamie being incredibly competent and professional and not playing daft political games. You know, so, well, I guess um, I guess you know to play devil's advocate there, the, the Tories will probably be loving this inter intra sort of Labour dispute, so they have every interest in praising you. Well, I'm sure there were, but this was before it was happening as well, right? Uh, so you know, there's your evidence. I mean, I think it is interesting that you you do manage to build bridges. You know, I've spoken to people who would say the same thing, who don't share your politics. But at the same time, on the, the most important relationship of all, the bridge has been blown up, you know, with the Labour Party itself, with Keir Starmer. And that seems an extraordinary thing to have happened. You know, how have, how have you, from your side, let that happen? Or, you know, what, why, why is the relationship broken down so badly? Well, that, that is an extraordinary thing. I think you're right, Tom. And to one extent, I think when people look at politics from the outside, they tend to think that it's much more organised than it is, that these, these shadowy conspiracies, that the Labour Party acts with, you know, the precision of a championship-winning football team. It really doesn't. So I think what this is, is that there's a number of different trends in the Labour Party at the moment. There are those who are absolutely focused on the polls and say whatever we need to win an election. And I understand that logic. I think there's some flaws in it. I think there's some strengths in it. But then there are those who are just faction warriors wanting to settle scores. And I think it was that side that did it, rather than it was anything necessarily coming out of Lotto in terms of leader of the opposition's office, in terms of strategy. Your previous podcast, you had Pat McFadden on, didn't you? Yeah. And I remember him saying that he says two things you need to do. If you're going to win the elections, you need to give people security. And he was talking about the defense of the realm. Well, my dad drove a tank in the army. My brother served in the Navy at the time of the Falklands. He was posted in the Indian Ocean at the time. Didn't see battle, but he was in the Navy at the time of the Falklands. I'm a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Very strong believer in, in law and order working. So there's no problem there. Yeah. And then it's about looking after people's money. 
And if you just look at what I've done as mayor, every pound I invest returns more than three pound at Treasury and payroll taxes alone. We've increased the adult education enrolments by 50% for the same budget. We've blown the jobs targets out of the water. Last year, we were the number one region for inward investment. So it makes no sense that the Labour Party is saying he doesn't fit that agenda of winning us public votes. So it really is. It's the, the petty faction fighting side of it. I think just got out of control somewhere. And as you've seen, they've been unable to provide a reason. Well, let's just dig into that now that now that we're here then. So it seems to be that the reason why they have not put your name forward for the candidacy for the, the new Northeast mayor. So let, let's just explain this to listeners. You're the mayor of North of Tyne, and this is now expanded into the whole of the Northeast mayor. So this is a, this is a new position, and you you were required to put your name forward to become the Labour candidate for that for this for this new position, and the Labour Party rejected your candidacy. And the reason that is being kind of briefed is because you shared a platform with Ken Loach, the socialist film director in March of this year, right, in Newcastle. Now, from from the Labour Party HQ's perspective, they are saying, we inherited this moral crisis of anti-Semitism in the party when Keir Starmer took over. And we have had to, to enact a policy of zero tolerance over this. And to prove to people that we treat it seriously. And Ken Loach has described it as a as a kind of witch hunt, hasn't he? That it has been used, this sort of anti-Semitism has been used as an excuse to purge the left. That was what Ken Loach has said. And so he was expelled from the Labour Party, I think, in 2021. I think I think that's right. And and so the Labour Party is saying, look, you shared a platform with this person that we think fell below the standards of our zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. If you'd apologized and said, look, I shouldn't have done that. I understand why people are angry. Then we'd be able to move on. We'd be able to put this issue to bed. Is there not a certain sort of stubbornness on your part that you you could say, you know, I like I like the films. I like the cultural aspect. But on this specific point that seems to have, you know, I think the Jewish labor movement called it, you know, the meeting, a hugely upsetting. Could you not have sort of said, hands up, you know, I understand why that's upsetting, why that could cause a problem for the Labour Party. Let's move beyond this and then we can stay friends. Well, there's a lot in there to unpack, Tom. So let's go back to anything to do with Ken Loach from March this year. Let's go before that, shall we? Okay. So as if I was an MP and this was a boundary change. I led the negotiations to get this new deal. It's not something that was created that I was jumping for. I, I'd done all the work to create it, Yeah, and that's well documented. It's the best-funded devolution deal in the country, and I got so much money out of Michael Gove and Grant Shapps and Simon Clark as a result of it. So everybody was expecting me to run for it, and, and you know, I am the mayor, the only mayor in the region, the only person who's got any experience of doing this job. Let's get that one in there. Yeah. So if I was an MP undergoing a boundary change, I would be automatically shortlisted. In January this year, the Labour Party changed the rules for mayoral selections and brought in new rules that said incumbency has no value whatsoever. Now, that's a weird thing to do, but that happened. And you think that's specific, um, that was specifically aimed at you? I think it was specifically aimed at controlling selections. It may not have been about me specifically, but the Labour Party, as we know, has changed the rules of their organisation to say, the principles of natural justice do not apply. For a human rights lawyer to oversee a party 
that says the rules of natural justice do not apply so that you can't mount a legal challenge. I think that's pretty damning. Anyway, but in my case, I've been asking as a mayor, I automatically, according to the rule book, I'm allowed to contact members directly. And I've been asking for this since I dug out an email when this blew up and shared it with the journalist. Turned out it was 2nd of June 2020, over three years ago now, I've been asking for this. And it was excuse after excuse. Oh, the system doesn't work. Oh, we haven't got the profile. It can't do it on a mayoral basis. So I asked other mayors. They said, yeah, they can, because they've done it for me. Went back. Oh, yeah, the person who's doing that isn't available. Lie after lie. January this year, I got an email from them. Said, you can only have the membership data if you promise you won't run as mayor in the future. From the regional director of the Labour Party. We've had them ringing up constituency parties, getting them to disinvite me when I was going to speak to them. So this has got nothing to do with Ken Loach. They were, you know, not wanting me to run. And, what, as, what, as and why was region. that? What, why was it's purely that? Factional. Purely factional. You know, there's, I mean, uh, I'm not going to put words into people's mouths, but there's a lot of people very unhappy that I won on a democratic basis. Actually, there weren't a lot of people. There was a very small number of people who had control who then found that you put it to the public, you put it to members, and they actually quite like the ideas I was talking about. They like the idea that I work cross-party. And I think there's probably a number of people think it's treason to be working with conservatives or liberals to get things through and do a good job. But that's the way combined authorities are set up. You, you are, by law, required to have the leaders and deputies of the constituent authority. So you've got to work with them and you've got to share platforms with people. And I think that's what the public want. But, you know, that's sometimes... It's often people perhaps on the right wing of the party who are much more tribal, you know, the narcissism of small differences than, than people who just want to work and get stuff delivered. Right. So you felt there was a kind of vendetta ever since you'd sort of surprised the party by winning in 2019. So there was a kind of vendetta that preceded the Ken Loach meeting. There were, yeah, we've seen people expelled. You know, a, a young woman, 25 years old, I think, I might have her age slightly wrong, a girl guide leader social work student, won a seat from the Tories in rural Northumberland. You know, a massive success. The party expelled her because she'd like to tweet of other Labour Party members who campaigned for it who happened to have a newspaper for another organisation there. Why would you? That's not a sensible approach. But that's sort of the culture in the Labour Party now. What, what organisation? Sorry. What, what, I think it was, it was Socialist Appeal. Who one of the, you know, there's, there's loads of them, you know, the, the people who sell papers outside meetings, there's, there's many. But liking a tweet of someone who's, camp- I think it, actually it was Facebook, who's campaigned for you, who is a Labour Party member, should not retrospectively be grounds for expulsion from a good councillor. So anyway, let's, let's get back to my situation. So the Live Theatre, a really good cultural organisation, community owned, in Newcastle, uh, asked the, we, we want us, you and Ken Loach, to do a, an in-conversation with about his films. Because people outside the region might not know. We don't get a lot of feature films set here. And we've had I, Daniel Blake, Sorry We Missed You, and his latest one, The Old Oak, which is about Syrian refugees integrating into a former mining community. And so Ken and I spoke about films and football and what you do in your spare time. All that, you know, just, just a general pleasant evening. It was very light. And uh, nobody in the region has complained. And then this thing comes out where people are saying, this is outrageous, blah, blah, blah. Jamie Driscoll shared a platform with Ken Loach. Well, actually, I think it's entirely reasonable to share a platform with cultural figures. So did that. And then after the event, the Labour Party said nothing to me, nothing whatsoever. I was never asked by the Labour Party to apologise to anyone because nobody had actually made a complaint except for Jewish Labour Movement people who don't live here. 
And then when this blew up, spontaneously, nothing to do with Milo, Jewish residents wrote a letter saying, hang on, we do not accept this. Please don't make us a stick, a stick to beat people with in an internal Labour faction fight. So, you know, there is no instance of that. So in that meeting when, so I put my candidacy in, we'd launched, you get, right, can you attend a due diligence interview? That, that was on the Thursday evening. And I said, look, is there any accusation of anti-Semitism against me here? So, no, absolutely not. Right. Right. And no disciplinary. No, absolutely not. No. And we're not questioning your competence either, Jamie. They said, right. So that was it. And this may be bad political judgment that you shared a platform with Ken Loach. And I said, well, I don't think it's actually is, you know. And then, boom, next thing you know, next day, there's an email. Thank you for applying. You have failed. Right. And let, let's just unpick this a little bit. Keir Starmer was in McLeibel, a Ken Loach film. And, yeah, all right, that was a while back. But he used the footage of it in his 2020 Labour leadership campaign. So that's really quite recent. And nobody's asking him to apologise. Ed Miliband invited Ken Loach onto his podcast, The Cheerful Podcast, and spoke to him about, hey, presto, films. I mean, what else are you going to talk to Ken Loach about? He's a filmmaker. Nobody's raised that as an issue. So, you know, this is not credible. That it's clearly one rule for me and one rule for the leadership of the Labour Party. So there hasn't ever been a kind of dis- internal disciplinary about this, about about anything? Never. Not one bit. How did this, th- where you just said that they said, you know, that was a bad political judgment? Was that, sorry, in person or by email? Or so That was, candidates go through due, due diligence process. Right. As, as, and you, you turn up, it's an online interview. They uh, go through your social media whatever else, and they say, oh, there's a thing here that was reported by the, the JLM that said you, you said, yes, I did share a, pl- a platform with Ken Loach. We didn't talk about anything to do with the Labour Party or expulsions or anything like that. It was about film, etc. You know, I think at one point he was saying, what do you do when you're not at film? He says, oh, I go down to the local non-league and you know, like all the other old blokes there, we shout at the ref and, you know, right. that sort of light-hearted stuff. Yeah. You know, what would you have done if you hadn't been a filmmaker? What would you have done if you hadn't been a politician? That, that, that sort of talk. And that was it. And then the the reason they have never given a reason why, and they have never communicated me why, and they've never asked me to apologise to anyone for anything. So what then happens is they come out with the briefings, right? But the briefings were basically unfounded, and then very quickly they stopped those briefings when it transpired that actually Ken Loach was being lauded by the BBC, he was having a standing ovation at Cannes at the time, and the Pope invited him to the Sistine Chapel. So, you know what, I think I'm in pretty good company there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel sort of cancelled then? Is that, is that, is that how, you, how you sort of understand it? Yes. I'm quite happy to go on the record and say there is a faction in control of the Labour Party machinery that is doing everything they can to get people who are yes men and women, people who are easily to, easy to control. And getting rid of me like this is a wonderful disciplinary tool for anybody else who might be independently minded. And do you, when you see, say, what happened to Nigel Farage with his bank accounts, do you feel that there's something bigger going on about people being cancelled? Or do you see this as a particular kind of labour problem? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hold up. 
I think, I mean, in general, I think there is, and probably always has been, this social convention of, oh, you can't say that. You know, anyone who's grown up in a northern household, I'm sure you had it the same, you know. Why has auntie so-and-so done that? Oh, quite, you can't say that, you know. It's there in society. It's part of human behaviour. But we should expect higher when we're designing rules for governance. They should be absolutely based on evidence, due process, rights of appeal. The Labour Party removed the rights of appeal from the rules in January this year for the selection of Metro Mets. I mean, that's ludicrous. And, you know, Nigel Farage, fair to say, I'm not his biggest fan. And I think a lot of what he says is deeply disingenuous. And I'm sure there's many people, I think he's being kind of hoisted on his own petard in some ways. But you should not be cancelling people's bank accounts on the basis you don't like their politics if they've done nothing illegal. Yeah. You know, there's there's issues about do we want to protect our brand, our reputation? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a responsibility to shareholders there. I can see that. You know, you might you might block a company for being dealing with, I don't know, Saudi arms dealers or something like that. And I think it's entirely legitimate for people to be withdrawing from, say, gas and oil investments on the basis. But that's a more practical thing to do with the climate emergency. And these things are always hard to balance. And that's why I think due process and fair-mindedness is very, very important. But you asked about the Labour Party, and I think the Labour Party, there's a really two-faced approach. You know, they're not dealing with Islamophobia, seriously enough. They're not dealing with anti-Semitism terribly well, where people have different views on, for example, the state of Israel. There's a lot of Jewish members being expelled. And most recently, there's been a pretty horrible racist tweet emerged from someone who should have passed due diligence, but clearly wasn't checked, against the, the Roma community. Oh, really? Where where was that? Well, that was right here, and it was my rival. Right. So you know, there, there were people putting complaints when it, you got it, it, it's, it's it's really obscene. Okay, so then so then talk to us about what's happened since. So then you were told when, what date were you told that you hadn't made this election? It was Friday the second of June. So. Friday the 1st of June, I get an, an invitation to come and talk to them. Friday the 2nd of June, about 4.30-ish, an email lands. Thank you for applying. You've not been successful. That's it. That's the only com- communication the Labour Party has ever, ever given me, despite the fact that for you know the next month and a half, I was still a serving Metro Mayor for the Labour Party. So if nothing else, that's really just sort of rude, isn't it? I mean, it's not even looking after your staff. And have you spoken to Keir Starmer about this or any, any of his team directly? No, I'd rather... Keir wouldn't have returned my calls, given that there's been hundreds of people signing letters into him, trade union leaders speaking on my behalf, and everybody saying he's intransigent. So that was that was the process. Took legal advice. It's an extraordinarily expensive process. I was advised the chances of winning, because they've changed the rules to say natural justice doesn't apply, were very low. So I wasn't going to crowdfund and waste a lot of people's hard-earned money on something if I honestly thought it wasn't going to work. And then there was this sort of initially briefing, oh, it's because she spoke to Ken Loach. And then that very quickly died when I rebutted that. And they said, it just doesn't meet the standards. And this is someone who's proven economic competence, created thousands of jobs, number one region for inward investment. I mean, I couldn't have been any better sort of poster child for Labour's arguments for economic competence and Labour's arguments for you know, just wanting to get the job done. And so you blame Keir Starmer directly, is it? Is this, this comes from the very top? Certainly... Jenny Chapman, when she was on the telly, said the Labour leadership was involved. Um, and I know with absolute certainty that Sharon Graham, because I'm a United Union member, had spoken to Keir Starmer about this very subject, and she told me he was totally intransigent. So he was aware of it. Now, he may not have instigated it, but he's in charge. 
What's the basis of his intransigence then? If you were to put yourself in his shoes, why, why is he intransigent on this issue? Someone said to me really early on, he says, at the moment, they look stupid. If they change their mind on this, they look stupid and weak. It's all about appearances and not one single thing. You know, it's not about me at all. I'm collateral damage in a, the faction fight that's taking place in Westminster. Right. So you're told about this in June. And then you spend, what, the next six weeks trying to change their mind? Is that, is that, yeah, that your plan? Much. Yeah. And there's been uproar in the Labour Party locally. So there's 22 constituencies. 11 refused to nominate because of what had happened to me. The remaining 11, almost all of them, in fact, all of them, had rebellions in some way. There was one where someone was on the phone to the regional director at the time and had said, if anybody mentions Jamie Driscoll's name, you will face disciplinary action. There was walkouts from meetings. At one meeting, which was on Zoom, because very easy to control the Zoom meeting, you just mute people, people started wearing Jamie Driscoll masks. So, yeah. <laughs> do, you any, do you have any screenshots of that? It'd be, I'd love to see those. <laughs> I think there's some on social media somewhere. I haven't collected them. But yeah, so and trade unions across the board, even non-affiliated trade unions, writing in saying to Kia, saying, look, this is outrageous. Just give the guy an appeal. Or the mayor saying, look, just let him have an appeal. I mean, come on. I mean, if that's the crime, everyone can be expelled. You know, if you talk to someone who at some point has fallen out with the Labour Party, I mean, what I said was, hang on, I just shared a panel with Ben Hoochin, Labour Tory mayor, just at neighbouring constituencies, and uh, that doesn't make me a Tory. And there's no argument for that. So, so then you basically decide, look, uh, th- this is not going to work. And on last week, you hand in your resignation as a Labour Party member, you, and then you decide to serve as an independent. And then you start a crowdfunding campaign. So t- talk to me about that. It's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I joined the Labour Party in 1985. My mum's a member, my brother's a member, my wife and my two sons, teenage sons are members, or were until recently. I think various ones have left now. And I've not encouraged anybody to leave the Labour Party. We've had local councillors leaving. You know, there is a real oppressive culture inside the Labour Party. It's pretty unpleasant. And I was asking the family, well, what would you think I should do next? Should I run as an independent? Because everyone asked me that immediately. It's kind of an obvious thing. It's happened before. If we look at Ken Livingstone, who, who beat the Labour candidate by a ratio of three to one. Yeah. And there was an outrage. You know, I've had councillors from every party, including independents. I've had MPs, I've had trade unions, I've had business leaders saying, Jamie, run as an independent. I've had Labour-affiliated general secretaries of union saying, Jamie, run as an independent. So obviously it was something I had to consider. Uh, sitting down with the family, and I do talk through these decisions with my family, uh, and said, what do you think I should do? Because, you know, I could go on and, you know, lots of other options available to me. And uh, it was my youngest son. And he said, Dad, Dad you're going to be campaigning for, for climate justice, for workers' rights, all of these things anyway. He says, fight this, because then you'll have the power to do something about it still. And he was right. So we said, all right, it's going to be really expensive going up against a party machine with their, you know, slick press operations, sometimes slick, but not always. And I said, right, well, if we can raise £25,000 by the end of August, then that shows the support is there and I'll run. And we raised that in two hours. I wondered, is that you being savvy, though? Did you set that bar at a low level because you just knew that you would pass it? Like, is this you being a canny, a canny political operator? Well, I'm going to thank you for the compliment there, first of all. <laughs> but it is the case that you do need money. And we'd worked it out that, right, so you know, if you're looking at May being the date, it's, uh, the amount you can spend in what's called a short campaign, for anyone who's not familiar with this sort of stuff, so that's when you put the nomination papers in at the end of the March of the year of the election, and it's sort of six weeks, £100,000 in that period, and we'd need 
right, to be prepping for that. So if we can get the money now, that would show we're running, then we'll run it again and we'll hit the money we need in time. So it actually just worked it out as a as you would a standard business plan almost. And I, I did not predict we were going to get this kind of support or that it was going to go. I mean, not only the amount of money, but over 5,000 individuals have donated, an average of around about 20 quid each. The support really is out there. But there was I was at a beer festival last Saturday, just before we finally decided we're going to do it. We're leaning that way by the time we got to bed. And people just kept coming up to me. And when I went to the bar, it says, oh, Jamie, yeah, good. I hope you run as an independent. And just there were so many people saying, we want you to do this. And I think this speaks to a big issue, um, you know, that nobody is happy with politics. And one of the things about being a regional mayor is you have a direct mandate from the people. You're not part of the Westminster bubble. And you can actually just get on and deliver things. So I think there's a really strong appeal for someone who's not going to be beholden to parties. And after what they've done to me, any Labour candidate anywhere is under control of the central party. They know that or they will be booted out. So this is actually a real opportunity for people to say, you know what, let's have a bit of independence. And the people in the North East have got a very strong regional identity and do not identify with London politics. Well, they also don't, don't, yeah, they don't like to be told what to do by the... Westminster or by, or by the Labour Party. I mean, I think it's quite interesting when I look back at the sort of northeast politics. You know, you had Dominic Cummings, also from the northeast, running the anti-regional assembly referendum way back in, God, when was it? God, it was 2004? 2004. Yeah, very early on. Were you, were you in favour of the northeast assembly or, or opposed? I, I was conflicted. Most of my views are, are shades of grey on most things, actually. So yes, I, I'm in favour of devolution, I did not like that model at all because it was there was two fatal questions which Dominic Cummings exploited very effectively. One, what powers is this assembly going to have? And it was the Labour government line at the time was, we will let you know. It will be up for the Secretary of State to decide what powers you can have. Right. And that fed into his white elephant. He said, look, this is just a white elephant. Second, it was all elected on party lists, not on individuals. And party lists get controlled by central offices invariably and not actually let's bring it to the members and let them choose someone. So it meant that there was never going to be any real independent voice in there. So, yeah, it was a very poor model. So you, vo- you, voted, you voted against that, did you? Um, I think I voted in favour of it, but I wasn't happy with it because I thought it was a you know, step towards it. Yeah, because it's interesting to me that I think that's the kind of model referendum, actually, for the 2016 EU referendum. If you go, if you compare what Cummings did, the big white elephant, no more politicians, it was a real kind of populist effective campaign that that wiped the floor it was something like 70 odd percent wasn't it who voted against it and now sort of fast forward to 2023 and we've created a kind of a a form of northeast devolution for the first time it's not an assembly but it's a single mayor for the whole of the of the northeast it's quite interesting that kind of arc of history rejected and then and then accepted and that the northeast are they going to rebel against the establishment again, but in a completely different way this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was the one who, who brought it together. The The moment I was elected, I started meeting all the leaders south of the river for cups of coffee and pints of beer and stuff like this that. This is south of the said, River Tyne, not the, not the Thames. Yes, yes. Yeah, my regionalism showing through there. Um, so one of the local authority leaders said, over my dead body. One of them said, I think you're right, Jamie. I think we should work together as a region. One said, we'll only do it if you stuff our mouths with gold. And I said, well, that's the plan. <laughs> I'm trying to get money out of central government for this. You know, it's our money. We pay our taxes here. So eventually we did get it. 
And the what's interesting in the public consultation has been pretty much two to one in favour. So it's not a referendum. Referenda are very expensive. And as we know, they tend to be also a referenda on the state of politics at the time. But the, the actual public consultation was very strongly in favour. And Metro mayors pretty much everywhere, regardless of the individual, people like the idea of having someone closer to them making decisions. And we need it here. I mean, our transport system is dire. And I'm guessing a lot of your listeners are in London. But the, the regional transport state of the buses is unbelievable. There's, there's places in County Durham or on a Thumbland where you can't get a bus after five o'clock. Yep. So if you're a shift worker going out for an evening, you, you know, you've got to pay for expensive taxis. Do you think when you, if you try to look up this objectively, Jamie, that actually both yourself and Keir Starmer are running sensible campaigns for what you're both trying to achieve, which is for you to win power in the Northeast and for Keir Starmer to win power in Westminster. He has currently got an enormous poll lead over the Conservative Party. He really looks like he's in a position to do something that is quite extraordinary historically, to go from the position that Labour found themselves in 2019 under Jeremy Corbyn to being, what, 20 points ahead of the Conservatives and having a good chance of winning a majority. There haven't been very many other examples of of a party being able to to achieve such such a swing. If he's able to get a majority, even if one, that's a, a swing equivalent to what Tony Blair achieved in 1997. So do you not have some kind of underlying strange respect for for what he's achieved if we start with the fact that i absolutely want to change a government you know it won't surprise anyone to think and i'm not going to spend a lot of time listing how dreadful they've been but your show is very much about looking how we got here so let's start with the financial crash in 2007 yeah there was almost no political consequence to that all right gordon brown lost because of it being associated with it but in terms of social movements and social upheaval we had the Occupy movement, but that was it. But then you could say the Scottish Indie Ref in 2014 was very much a part of we're not happy with the world the way the world works. And then the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader in 2015 was certainly part of that. Look, the bankers seem to have got away with it. We've all had our pay cut, our pensions cut, our public services cut, and the rich are getting richer. Mm-hmm. So that was undoubtedly part of the fuel for the Corbyn surge. And then the Brexit vote in 2016, bang, 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 one after the other. And the speed at which politics is changing, I've been mayor for a little over four years. Theresa May was prime minister when I was elected. I've been through four prime ministers, <laughs> chancellors, about 50 different ministers I've worked with. Most of them aren't there anymore. And so the whole of politics is lurching, careering from pillar to post, because nobody is actually coming out and saying, here are the answers to fix it. Now, it's been exacerbated undoubtedly by John- Boris Johnson's personal failings and lack of integrity. And they're well documented. And then Liz Truss comes in and in something like a shower scene out of Dallas that everyone's now thinking, did that actually happen that seven <laughs> weeks? Yeah. Or I just see that on telly. And so at the same time during that period, Keir Starmer's Labour Party lost the Hartlepool by-election in the northeast. Yeah. Barely won the, the Batley and Spen one by just a few hundred votes. Didn't win in London. So there's, it's all over the place. And absolutely... People have a view that, look, we're not going to vote Conservative anymore. There'll be a small number who do, but, you know, their, their vote has undoubtedly collapsed. Um, and the Labour Party is absolutely right, from their perspective, to say, yeah, we're going to capitalise on this. I'm not sure the ming Vars strategy, though, is terribly wise, because time moves on. Tell, and tell years, me about the ming Vars strategy. What's that? The ming Vars strategy is... <gasps> 
if we do nothing and we're super careful, like you're carrying a Ming vase across a slippery floor, everything will work out. It's a very passive strategy to winning elections. Now, the reality is that there are millions of people who desperately need a pay rise, whose real-term pay is falling badly. Public services underfunded. NHS waiting lists through the roof. These are real problems that people have to deal with. And the government is going to have to come in and do it. And if you've said, we don't have the ability to do anything, then it's creating a vacuum in politics. And my real worry is that they genuinely don't think they can fix it. Because if you had a plan for fixing it, when you're 20 points ahead, and I say, this is not a rerun of the 1990s for two reasons. One, the 1990s, we were in that long upswing of the property house price bubble, which crashed you know, 10 years later, Mm -hmm. uh, but meant that the Labour Party had a lot of money that it could fund things with. So you're going to have to find a creative way out of this, and you need to be selling people what it is now. Secondly, that Labour government was actually quite radical. It brought in the minimum wage. And at the time, the Conservatives were saying, this will crash the economy, we'll have waves of unemployment, and it wasn't true. So there are things that, that make no sense whatsoever. Why would you visit Google... And then three days later, say, we're going to roll back from taxing big tech companies. Do you, do you know the odd thing, though, Jamie, is I was listening to Keir Starmer at the Tony Blair's Future of Britain conference this week, earlier this week. And actually, you don't sound a million miles from him at all. You know, he was making some similar points to what you've just said. He was saying that if we do not prove to people that we can grow the economy, change, fix things, then there will be this kind of sense of dispirited apathy that will just gnaw away at the country people will give up on politics he was making this same point that we have to we have to change things and he was standing there with the person as you've just said who was actually far more radical in 97 than people now sort of understand or the picture is is as as the picture is presented you know a a levy on on the oil companies wasn't it at the time and the minimum wage and things like that so isn't there I, again, I come back to this thing that you don't seem to be so different from the Labour Party as the perception. The fallout seems to me really quite strange. Aaron Bastani did this piece on it on Navarra Media, and he says, look, this guy's really impressive. In, in any sane culture, Jamie Driscoll would be a centrist dad, <laughs> which I thought nailed it, actually. So, you know, that is me, but... Why then? It makes no explanation whatsoever of why they would get rid of someone who really is really genuinely very good at working with business and creating jobs and, and economic growth, and they should have been championing that. Are you are you are you a secret secret Blairite? <laughs> no, I, th- um, I think you might. I think you might be. I'm quite happy to go on record and say he needs to face charges for war crimes. Oh, is that? I mean, but that, but, but those are the kind of things, presumably, that will would, would cause you a problem. That's the Corbyn line. I think it was also the line of the General Secretary of the United Nations. <laughs> so, you know, this is fairly mainstream. And that's the thing, you know, if, if we were in Scandinavia, I would be a mainstream politician. You know, this is not someone who's, you know, waving hammer and sickle flags about or anything like that. You know, I'm very good at getting on with it. But now this is the kicker. So Keir Starmer may have been saying, yes, we need economic growth. Did he tell you how he was going to achieve it? No, not not specifically in that speech. I mean, I think he's said it out before, hasn't he? I, I I don't want I don't want to make the pitch for him, but it's to do with green investment and a more active state. I mean, I also think Keir Starmer is actually clearly to the left of Tony Blair. Like he is, he is obviously trying to appeal to the country 
and is learning lessons from Blair. But all the evidence of his kind of history suggests that he is of the soft left of the party and instinctively a far more of a kind of Ed Milibandite than a than a David Milibandite. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, he doesn't have a long political history. Well, he's like like you. He was campaigning from early from early on, wasn't he? For, he was a part of the Labour Party from very early on. So I'm, I'm not going to have a go at Keir's record, but certainly the way he's run the Labour Party has been extremely authoritarian to a way that should alarm people, which worries me. But there's a number of people I've spoken to. For example, people, and I'm not going to name names here because private conversations stay private, but who worked in the Blair Policy Unit, 95 onwards, when they were preparing for government, who told me, he said, look, we had draft bills ready, we knew what we were going to do, we had plans, and he says, and this lot haven't. So that's it. So it's one thing to say we need economic growth. I mean, you know, I mean, who's going to say we, we, it's motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? But unless you're prepared to say what the tough decisions you'd make would be, then it's easy. People are going to be worried about that. And when you say we're going to leave kids in poverty, that two-child cap, that one minute you're saying it's a heinous policy and the next minute you're saying we're going to do that. How can anyone trust what you're going to do? I mean, there's a real lack of trust in politics across the board here. And it's, a lot of this isn't economically sensible. When you talk about growing the economy, the green sector, to say, yeah, but we're not going to put the $28 billion in, definitely, and if we, even if we do, it won't be straight away. What signal does that send to private industry? I mean, I work with these people, and they're going to be thinking, right, well, we're going to need to, a five-year development period. We're going to need to hire the engineers and the researchers, and we're going to need to set up a new facility. And unless you have some certainty, that investment isn't going to happen. So it, what they're doing now actually has an effect on how they will govern. They need to be preparing the ground for this. Uh, no, I mean, look, all, all reasonable points. I mean, I was looking back over Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto in 2017. You know, there was a piece in, I think it was in The Observer at the time, that was saying the Resolution Foundation had calculated that the Corbyn manifesto was going to keep 7 billion of the 9 billion Tory welfare cuts. You know, this isn't something unique to... To, to Starmer, this is something that Corbyn was also having to grapple with. The fact that the public finances are in a you know in a terrible state. Yeah, and you know I, I do terrifically well on my budgets to the extent that we just had our gateway review where the civil servants come and, and say how well have you done, and they used the word remarkable for our progress. For civil servants to use the word remarkable is in itself remarkable. <laughs> you know, I get this. Nobody's saying. I don't think anybody is saying. You know, we want you to borrow vast sums of money in a way that's not sustainable. But you can't at one stand say in January, we're going to end sticking plaster politics and we're going to have long-term solutions and then say we're going to do nothing to get kids out of poverty, which is about one of the most expensive things that happens long-term. If you've got people with a bad start in life, poor health, poor educational attainment, it costs you a fortune. It's, they'd be far better saying that we are going to do something sensible. And what people want from their politicians is actually, I think, a little bit of realism and boosterism of Johnson can go the other way. It's, there is no hope. It's all doom and gloom. Expectation management is not expectation management. If you had a plan for fixing it, then you should tell people that. And they would say, thank you for being honest with us. And when you're 20 points ahead, the ming Vars strategy risks actually paralysis. And you're far better off saying, yeah, we do have a limited amount of money. This is what we're going to do with it. Right. Let's uh, end with some predictions. Let's be completely unrealistic and unsensible. So tell me, are you going to win? And is Labour Party is the Labour Party going to win the general election? Is the Labour Party going to win the general election? I think that is extremely likely. And I think they will win it by quite a margin. 
but I think we'll see a lot of Lib Dems coming in there as well. And the reason I think that is politics can, a lot can happen between now and then, but I really get the sense the Tory party's given up and the fight's out of them. And I think that is, is as much a reason for the prediction as anything else. In the North East, I absolutely can win. We've had a look at the polling. Labour have got in locals about 39% over the past few years. The environmental vote will come to me. The independent vote will definitely come to me. All the people who voted Tory and tribal loyalties have broken down in the North East over the past few years. They really have. All the people who voted Tory recently are not going to vote Tory. And the idea of a strong independent voice who works with business who, you know, is, is socially progressive, but really gets, you know, I am the typical red wall voter, then I think all of that will come to me. And I think the majority of Labour members will vote for me. And I think the Labour strategy is to keep as quiet as possible and hope that people turn up, are uninformed, and just put the ticks next to Labour because of traditionally our nat- national reasons. So I think we're in a very strong chance indeed. Interesting. The, the Corbyn is the libertarian socialist elected with... Tory votes. (laughs) I don't call myself a Corbynista. You know, that was a moment in history. I remember when I first had a conversation with Jeremy, he rang me up in 2019, the night before my election. So I was out campaigning and the call came through. Obviously, someone had got my number, given him it. And he said, oh, good luck. So thank you very much. The first time I actually had a proper sit-down conversation with him, I was already elected as mayor. I was in Port Cullis House chatting to someone about some policy work hand on my shoulder, oh, hello, well done, do you want to come and have a cup of coffee? And so that was the first time I'd actually had a proper conversation with him. So this idea that I was some sort of inner circle person, (laughs) it's not true. You know, I'm a strong believer that people need security in their lives, and that means much better working conditions. But I also think we need to give the market certainty if we're going to get serious investment. You know, this is just actually about stability and sensible politics. And the fact that I'm sometimes called a radical tells you how weird our politics is at the moment. Maybe it's the uh, the conservative socialist then. Something like that. Who knows? Thank you very much for chatting. It's It's been really interesting and very enjoyable. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to that bonus episode of These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions at all, any queries, please do not hesitate to get in touch with us on Twitter or by email, and we'll do our best to answer them. And please do remember to subscribe to the show to get all the latest episodes as soon as they drop every Tuesday. Next week, we're delving into the long, long history of President Joe Biden and what that tells us about the United States. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.